Two weeks ago, I was in uh, Washington, D.C. for a conference. It's not one of these conferences that leave you with a lot of good feelings. It was a difficult subject. It was on the tragedy of sex trafficking. Uh, something that is a reality, not just way out there uh, in other parts of the world, uh, but very much in the United States, right here in Portland, all over the place. It was eye-opening, to say the least. Multiple times I thought the fire hose could not have any more force than it did, and yet I was forced to drink even more out of it. It wasn't easy. Very difficult and heavy subject. But the energy I expended to take it in pales in comparison to the survivors themselves who have been trafficked. One of the striking stories I heard related to a group of women in India, I believe, it was either India or Sri Lanka. They had been reached by a group of Christians who were working to set them free, give them shelter, give them protection from their traffickers. I'll not go into much detail because what they endured is unspeakable. And during this slow process of being freed from this sickening slavery, the women attended a small church where these Christians, these followers of Jesus, were doing their very best to encourage them, to provide, to fight for these dear women. And it wasn't unusual in the middle of worship for a man to walk into the building in the back during the service and motion for one of the women. And inevitably they would stand up and hand their child to someone else and walk out and be gone for 30 minutes or so and then return to the worship service. And everyone knew what had happened. It's difficult for me to get my head around this. What's particularly astonishing to me, though, in all of it, is that she came back and that she continued to worship. And she kept coming back and she showed up every week. Apparently, this tortured woman who suffered more than we could ever imagine sees no discontinuity between her suffering and a loving God. Does that strike you as remarkable? What kind of internal fortitude, what kind of faith, what kind of patience does it take to believe that this God whom we meet in Jesus of Nazareth does not fail on His promises even when we are enduring something so dark and unthinkable as that. Imagine what it was like for her, sitting, hearing the good news of the gospel, that God loves you unconditionally, that God provides, that God is your fortress, that God will bless you, all of those things, and then in the middle of that being called out to face that sort of darkness. How did she do it? 
How do we patiently persevere, believing that God will come through, even if my suffering feels like he won't? I'm convinced this poor woman has read the Psalms. They must be deep in her heart. How else does one face that sort of life? Maybe she's read Psalm 129, which we said earlier together. There are truths in it that would give us what I believe she has. And when I read these verses in Psalm 129, a number of words come to mind to sort of summarize it, but one of them is patience. I've never seen patience listed among a church's core values. Maybe I just haven't seen them. Nor do we hear it discussed very much in church, but my suspicion is that much of our failure to mature as followers of Jesus can be attributed to an inability to wait, to wait for God patiently. Seems like everything in life trains us to be impatient, right? Whether it's subconsciously or even consciously. I don't know about you, but in the age of Apple Watches and Chat GPT, I want everything that I want on a screen right now. Even before I click, I want it there. Is there anything more frustrating to us right now when we can't get a signal, right? When we lived in Edinburgh, we lived toward the edge of the city, just before you reach the bypass that goes around the capital there. We were not in the wilderness, okay? Just on the edge of the city. So it deeply vexed me that my broadband internet was about a third of the speed of the people who lived just down the road toward the city just a little bit. I couldn't stream sporting events online. My online video calls would freeze up constantly. Can you imagine such an existence? I don't even know what to do. There are all sorts of other ways that our world trains us to be impatient. You know that button that you can push that closes the elevator door? <laughs> you know that one? You know the guy that stands there pushing that button all the time? That's me. Did you know that that door will eventually close on its own? Are you aware of that? I'm aware of that, but apparently it's not quite fast enough. To be honest, I figured out what I don't like. It's not just the time. It's that I'm afraid right before the door starts to close, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to jump in, stop the door, pull it back, and then the cycle begins again, and I have to wait even longer. It's like leaving PDX, and you know that circular door, and you're in it, and you're the first one in it, and you're walking, and you're almost out, and somebody jumps in behind you, and it stops. And you're like, what is happening? Disaster. And if we're forced to wait two minutes in a drive-thru, we're tapping our fingers, we're wondering why these incompetent people are allowed in the workforce, and then they get our order wrong. And, oh. 
I know, you don't have these problems. We've all been formed by a society that cannot be patient. We can't wait. We can't accept the possibility that the good could be delayed and that it's worth waiting patiently for the good to come, for the light to expel the darkness. Have you ever experienced a season of life where you cried out to God regularly for Him to provide, to intervene, just to help in some way, any way, and He needed to do it quickly? Maybe you're in that season now. And have you ever, during such a time, heard Him say in response to your pleas and your cries, just wait. I don't love that. I'm the little kid in the back seat on the road trip who has no concept of time and continually asks, are we there yet? God, are we there yet? You said you'd be my fortress, my deliverer from the enemy, my healer from every disease, my comfort during my grief. You said you would bring peace in my family's turmoil, my joy in the middle of my depression. You promised you'd provide. And that your people would experience peace and joy and a land that flows with milk and honey. And we've been serving you and helping others. And why are we not there yet? Why have you forsaken us? Oh God. And the Lord, just like the patient and loving parent who understands time and distance on the road trip, responds with, wait, wait, wait. I think we've grown a little impatient with God. I think I have. He just doesn't seem to come through on his end of the deal in a timely manner. And I think this has greatly impacted our ability, my ability, to be a real disciple. Real disciples are people who persist in following Jesus over the long haul, no matter what the journey may bring. Perhaps our attention has been diverted elsewhere. Perhaps we've been, become fixated on spirituality, but not Christian discipleship. There is a difference. Our world is full of spirituality. Our city is full of spirituality. It's not the same as discipleship. Discipleship demands the patient cultivation of virtue and obedience. After all, discipleship is an apprenticeship on how to carry a cross. Discipleship is patiently pressing on without succumbing to the lie that if it's good, then we get it quickly and efficiently. And so, a patient, persevering follower of Jesus, in spite of the long furrows plowed on our backs, is a person who is the true Christian disciple. The psalmist said, they have greatly oppressed me.
from my youth. Now, you think that the Christian faith is fragile. <coughs> And that this fragile faith is based on, at best, a remote possibility, and at worst, a delusion. Now, young people, this is what you will be told in your science classes. Faith and spirituality might be okay for many, but it's not something to be trusted, something to be relied upon. Faith doesn't correspond to reality. That's what you'll be told. Thus, we might think that any hardship will eventually break faith's will and send it scurrying off for shelter elsewhere. And no doubt that has happened in some cases, but the psalmist testifies to something very, very different. Oppression has been a feature of Israel's life. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, implying that they are older that this has been years. It's been a feature of their life, not a one-off incident in an otherwise peaceful existence, but a constant, a deep oppression, something we go to bed thinking about at night, something we wake up realizing is our future for the day. Now, lest you think I'm making that up, look at how he describes the oppression in verse 3 of Psalm 129, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Can you imagine that? I mean, the picture is one we have to take a moment to appreciate. There were at least two oxen fitted with a yoke, tied with cords to the plow, pulling the plow that cuts deep into the earth. But in this case, they're not cutting into the earth, but into Israel's back. The rows are deep, and they're long. It's not a pleasant image, is it? Oxen don't run. They plod. They move slowly. So to accomplish the purpose, they take very long periods of time to get the job done. All this on the back of the one whose faith in having the good life is in the one true and living God, the follower of Jesus, is suffering this kind of oppression. So when I read that, long furrows in my back, I can't help but think of those poor women in India, in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, and Atlanta, and Los Angeles, and Beaverton. But, there's always a but in the scripture. Look for those. It's a very important conjunction. But they have not gained the victory over you. How could that be? The description is one of overwhelming pain, even death. Long furrows in my back for years and years and years, but there is no victory. Such torturous oppression surely makes something as weak as faith run for cover, doesn't it? You would lose faith with that kind of oppression. And then the psalmist says, 
because the Lord is righteous. He is just. He is faithful in his relationship with his people. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. It's as if the oxen are still trampling but accomplishing absolutely nothing. The plow isn't working. The cords that hold the plow to the oxen aren't even attached. They are wasting their time, all of these oppressive, oppressive enemies. Someone has come along and freed us from the power of the oppression so that the plow has no effect now. Now, very important to notice that the psalm doesn't ignore the oppression by the wicked. doesn't ignore it. The oxen are plodding. The furrows in the back are long and deep. The pain is real. No one's overlooking your pain, your suffering. No one's saying, ah, don't worry about it. There is a deep and heartfelt groan and acknowledgement of the pain and the suffering that the psalmist is describing. Thus the images he chooses for. And the pains are in our back, and we know that when the pains are in our backs, every aspect of life is negatively affected, right? We know that, right, Richard? You know that more than the rest of us. So the psalmist is utterly realistic about our current suffering. But he also believes that the oppression has no ultimate power over us. Why? Because the Lord is righteous, the Lord is just, the Lord will keep his promises, the Lord will be faithful. God has cut the cords of the oxen and the plow, and when the cords are cut, that's a way of saying that they won't be able to accomplish their purposes and have any victory over us. That's what this dear woman in India had to know. Somehow. She had to know that even though the furrows are long and deep and bring unspeakable pain to her, both physically and emotionally, none of that has the power to overwhelm the God who is fully committed to us and will one day set all of it right. Now, how does God do this? How does he break the power of the plow? Even if we continue to experience the plodding of the oxen. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. The power of the plow. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. So to keep the image of the song, here's how Paul would say it. He lifted us up out of the field, and He lay down in our place, allowing our enemies to furrow on his back. 
That's what it means. That's what Paul means when he says the Lord is righteous. The Lord is just. The Lord has made this right. What you're going through. He has cut us free from the cords of the wicked. He has taken them upon himself in Christ. So now Paul can confidently say in Romans 8.18, You know this suffering that you're enduring right now? Well, it's just nothing. It's fleeting. It's almost imperceptible, he says, compared to the glory that will flood our lives when we see Jesus. Patient for him. Wait on God. He will fulfill all of his promises. Paul's assertion in Romans 8 would be at best poor counsel and at worst completely callous and heartless unless what God has for us in Jesus truly exceeds anything we could imagine. not overlooking your suffering. He's not saying you're not oppressed. He's not saying any of the cries in your heart are unreal or something that you should just get over. He is saying when we turn our gaze to Christ and our hearts are filled with what he has done for us on the cross and resurrection, then all of the oppression and the suffering that we're under begins to be seen through that lens and it will give us faith and endurance and perseverance and patience. Not to love what we're going through, nor to minimize it, but to persevere. One more thought. Paul in Romans 6 uses a concept that makes us very uncomfortable. You picked up on it, I'm sure. He says we're no longer slaves to sin. Jesus has made us free. But then in verse 18, he calls us slaves to God. Now this won't make it onto any Christian billboards or bumper stickers, right? And we all bristle at the illustration. But we need to know what he means. And what he means is that being a slave to God is freedom. It is not oppression. He says in verse 22, Now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. So being a slave to God is far from tyranny. It's actually in rejecting God that we become subject to tyranny. Now, young people, this is a very important for you because you're going to be told if you're a slave to God, then you are being oppressed. You're being oppressed by religion. You're being oppressed by God. The Apostle Paul says exactly the opposite. You are being freed from everything that pulls you toward death, and God is releasing you to be given life. And in the middle of being a slave to God, it results in the life that can face absolutely anything. Anything. The worst that humanity has to offer. I have a friend who's lost his faith. You probably have a friend like that. 
used to be faithful. This particular friend is a seminary graduate, has his doctorate in New Testament, taught in seminaries, two seminaries. Talking to my friend about what happened to him is an eye-opening experience. He talks about, still to this day, talks about an intense desire for God to change his sinful inclinations with few positive results. He talks about Christianity not working for him. It's an interesting way of phrasing it. He talks about disappointments with the church. Yeah, I think we've had those, right? He talks about how simplistic explanations of Jesus just doesn't hold water for him when life hits those rocky points. And maybe you can identify with some of those things. And so my friend quit. And he's walked away. Impatience, I think, has dashed his faith. And maybe you're there. Maybe you haven't lost faith yet, but the questions are deep, and you're not sure what your faith will look like in the near future. I know. I know. The furrows in your back may be long and deep. You continue to feel the plodding oxen who insist on pressing your faith down further into the mud. My friend, Thanks be to God.